0: Well, believe it or not, this is the final sermon of our series here in Genesis 1 through 11. I hope someday to return back to this book and to pick up where we leave off this morning. But I trust that this is remind you where we have come from, the beginnings of humanity, the beginnings of God's plans, and where we are headed. And we will begin uh, next Sunday returning to the book of Matthew, our series there called Jesus is King. And uh, I already wrote that sermon. Looking forward to that time together. Um, I hope it'll bless you as you see a picture of our Savior every single week as we work through the book of Matthew. But I thought there really isn't a better way to end um, our little study in Genesis than with A very easy to pass pop quiz. So on the screen, I'm going to show you a flag. And I'm going to see if you can guess what flag this is. Don't yell out the answer because I'll give everyone a chance to process it. It's really difficult. And see if they know the answer. Do you know this flag? Okay, you've got the answer. Church family, on the count of three, what is this flag? One, two, three. The Olympic flag. Good job. Did you know next summer is the Olympics? I don't know if you know where they are. They're going to be in Paris. And I'm really excited in 2028, for the first time in a long time. The Olympics will return to the great United States of America. They'll be in the city, well, the not-so-great city of L.A. in 2028. And uh, if you are a bucket list wanting to attend an Olympics-type person, that is your chance in 2028. The Olympics, I don't know about you. I'm not a huge sports guy. I like sports. I didn't grow up in a family like that, so I just kind of have to navigate my own way in the sports world. Um, I didn't grow up in a family that watched NFL every Sunday or whatever, um, But I I really, really love the Olympics. I don't know if you feel the same way. There's something different, isn't there? Like you can watch, oh, let's say Major League Baseball, which right now they're in the World Series, and who would be in the World Series other than the Arizona Diamondbacks, baby? But you can watch baseball and, and even have your own state representing there. It wasn't too long ago, the Kansas City Royals were in the. World Series, and now they suffer a much worse fates every baseball season, but you know, uh, it, it's fun to watch your team in the World Series or to watch your favorite athlete competing in track or other sports, basketball in the NBA, but there is something special, isn't there? Watching your home nation compete with that flag on their jersey. I love the Olympics. I love watching them, and I'm not an emotional person I, at least I wouldn't consider myself that, but I do choke up nearly every time they play that anthem when our country takes home the gold. What has made the Olympics so special, and I, I don't, you may know this, but sometimes we forget, is that the Olympics really is not just about sport. The Olympics is an attempt to forge a path or to at least give the world a taste of world peace. Those who are competing in the Olympics have to be at peace with one another in order to compete. In fact, their own literature on their website says this, that the ideals of the Olympic Games represent a longing in the heart of humanity for world peace, for unity amidst our differences, and for a cessation of conflict between nations. And that's been true because, in fact, there are a couple different Olympiads, periods of Olympic Games, that they've not had games. And wouldn't you guess it, it was during the periods of the World Wars. They didn't have the Olympic Games because the world itself was not at peace. So they refused, and in practical ways they couldn't, have an Olympic Games when the world itself was contradicting the mission of the Olympics. I wonder this morning if you agree with their statement that there is a longing in the heart of humanity for world peace. Do you think that's true? I do. Of course, there's conflict right now in the Middle East, and different areas, Russia, Ukraine. All these things have filled our headlines for weeks and months. And I think all of us have, to some degree, a longing in our heart. And that's why we ask questions like this for thinking right. Why is our world so separated when humanity has so much in common? Why is it that we tend to highlight our differences rather than our similarities? And I don't know, I, at least growing up at school, this was always a question. How can we achieve world peace In unity between all the nations, when we're all so incredibly different by culture and language and race and all of these different things. Those are huge questions. Questions that even the Olympics can't solve because the reality is the Olympics, I think, take place over 17 days, and it's not usually very long after that another conflict ensues. Those are big questions. But yet, I think our passage this morning in Genesis gives us a glimpse into the answer to those questions. We're going to finish our series in Genesis with a really big chunk of scripture. Two entire chapters, Genesis 10 and Genesis 11. But I want you to see, and I'm going to try and point out as we read not the whole thing, rest assured, we're not reading all 60 plus verses, But I hope as we read, you'll get a sense of maybe how when Moses was writing this, he meant for us to think of all of this in one big unit and read these chapters as one big section that tells us God's plan for the nations. Our passage this morning, I think breaks down to three sections. Chapter 10 shows us scattered nations from a single origin. The first part of chapter 11 shows us scattered nations from a sinful origin. And then in chapter 11, in a very unique way, will show us God's plan to bless and reunite the nations. So let's pick up our reading in Genesis 10, and we will do a survey of this passage this morning before we get into God's word. Genesis chapter number 10, verse one says this. Now these are the generations of the son of Noah, sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And unto them were sons born after the flood. What seems like a genealogy isn't quite a genealogy, as we'll see in a little bit. There are no birthdays, death days, or anything. It's very broad. Notice verse two, the sons of Japheth. Verse six, the sons of Ham. Remember Ham from last week, the bad guy? Verse number 21, unto Shem also the father of all the children of Eber, The brother of Japheth the elder, even to him were children born. And then verse 32 concludes chapter 10 by summarizing said, These are the families of the sons of Noah after their generations in their nations. And by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. And interestingly, chapter 11 seems to chronologically happen before chapter 10. And you'll see why. Verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 1. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. And they said, go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of men had builded. And the Lord said, behold, the people is one. And they all have one language and this they begin to do and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth and they left off to build the city Therefore is the name of it called Babel because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth. And from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. And then there's another genealogy. These are the generations of Shem. Wait, I thought we already covered that guy. They kind of. Look at verse 30, or 26. And that genealogy of Shem ends here. And Terah lived 70 years and begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran. God, I pray this morning you'd bless your word. Lord, teach us. We pray by the work of your Holy Spirit. Feed our souls with the bread of life this morning and help us to see your plan for humanity as we examine this text today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I told you that chapter 10, in its uniqueness, gives us the picture of scattered nations from a single origin. And what's interesting about chapter number 10 is it gives us this big panoramic view of the Middle Eastern world. It it shows us not just people, but what becomes obvious if you read really closely is that this is not like the genealogy in chapter five where it's like this guy had these sons. It's very uh, loosely arranged. We're not entirely sure if these are direct descendants always being named. And Moses intentionally chooses to use not the name of the people, but to use the name of the nations that they eventually founded. And so All of the nations that make up chapter number 10 are 70 nations, 70 representatives of the world at large. And if you read all of chapter number 10, which, by the way, if you don't get a weekly email that tells you what text to read, this is your prompting to put your email on a connection card and turn that in so you can get an email that shows you what text will be in every Sunday. If you're not getting that email, I'd like to hear from you. But if you read that this week, you would have noticed maybe that in chapter number 10, interestingly, there's one nation that's not named at all. The nation of Israel. And so this breaks down not just into people, but into the nations that eventually came of those people. So in verse number two, we have in verses two through five, the sons of Japheth, and they begin to scatter and form a bunch of different nations. And verse number five tells us, How to think of the sons of Japheth, look at verse number five. It says, by these were the isles of the Gentiles divided in their lands. Everyone after his tongue, after their families and in their nations. So what Moses is saying is, okay, from the sons of Japheth, kind of north and west to Israel, what would eventually become Israel, are these Gentile people that came from eventually their brother Japheth. Verses 6 through 20 is the largest section of, of this passage, and it's the sons of Ham. This is the guy who God uttered a curse towards in last week's passage. And when you read through 6 through 20, you realize that these are not any of the good guys in Scripture. Verse number 8 talks about Nimrod, who eventually is the founder of the nation of Babylon. Not the good guy in Scripture, Verse number 11 talks about Assyria. In our Bible, it's translated Asher, which is literally Assyria. Verse number 11 talks about Nineveh. We all know about them, don't we? Uh, Chapter 10, verse 13 talks about Egypt. In our Bible, it's translated Mizraim, which is literally Egypt. In verse number 15, look down at verse number 15 of chapter number 10. The famous uh, enemies that will soon occupy the pages of Joshua is Canaan who came from Ham. Verse number 19, it doesn't even stop there. If you go to verse number 19, he names Sodom and Gomorrah, all issuing from this distant brother, Ham. Verses 21 through 31, then go on to describe the descendants of Shem. Shem would eventually be the chosen son, the line through which the seed of the woman would be expected to come. And what's odd about this, and what you have to understand to really understand this passage, is that in verses 21 through 31, not all of Shem's descendants are named. Not all of them are named. It traces down to Eber. So Shem has Eber, and this guy Eber has two sons, Joktan and Peleg. In chapter 10, it describes all of Joktan's descendants, but not this guy Peleg well, that's interesting. And you're like, why is he doing that? And then all of a sudden he interrupts all of this with the story of the Tower of Babel. And then interestingly in chapter 11, he picks up the genealogy again and it's more detailed and more con- uh, consecutive. And he gives the genealogy of this guy, Pelag, who eventually lands down on Abraham. But if you survey all of this chapter, in chapter number 10, there's 70 nations. Now, if you think about that number 70 in Jewish thought, The number 70 represented a larger group of people. So it it symbolized completeness representing a larger group. So at the end of Genesis, there's 70 sons of Jacob. And then here there are 70 nations. And so Moses is saying, here's basically all of the known world as we know it. And they all, his idea, his main thought in chapter number 10 is every nation, The good guys, the bad guys, and the neutral guys. Here's his point. Verse 32, all of those guys come from Noah. Why on earth am I preaching this 70-nation genealogy? Why would God record this in everlasting scripture? Well, think about what point God could be trying to make when in a very neutral way, there's not a bad word said about all the bad dudes in here. In a very neutral way, Moses lists out all of the guys who, the people who are reading this in the, the first time it was delivered would have known about all these bad dudes. But he lists them just as a table and basically says this, all of the bad guys, all the neutral guys and all the good guys come from Noah. And back in the day, all the bad guys were brothers. What could God be trying to communicate there? Well, I think, first of all, God is trying to show us that his heart, his love, his desire is not just for one nation, Israel. No, 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 no. You've misread scripture if you've thought that. God's love in his heart is so big, it captures all of the nations. That's why Israel is intentionally left out of chapter number 10. He's showing us that all of these different people with their different languages and cultures and even their different gods all find their common origin in a guy named Noah. And interestingly, if you read this in its context, that means all of these different people, even people who don't worship God, are all under the covenant God gave Noah, which was that he would not destroy humanity with a flood. God is saying this. It's not just Israel that matters to me. All of the nations matter to me. That's why when he's describing a guy named Nimrod, that's a name, right? I mean, Nimrod, who is the founder of the nation of Babylon. Again, bad dudes in scripture. In verse number five, he talks about how Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That's not a negative saying. That's saying that God was present and was aware of even this evil man's life. And if we recognize that our God is not just interested in one type of people, he's not just interested in Israel. And my friend, I love America, but God is not just interested in America. God has a heart for all nations. He is not, as Peter says, a respecter of persons. He's not interested in one race or in one family of descendants. No, Paul has said that God has made of one blood all nations. God views people in this way. God views all people having the same origin. And if God views people that way, you and I should too. You know what Moses is saying to Israel? He's saying, yes, some of these people are going to be your enemies. Yes, some of these people have sinned against God, the Canaanites specifically, and that's why God would drive them out of the land and give it to Israel who would worship him and be his royal priests and kings. But you know what he's saying to Israel? Don't you think for a moment you're better than them. He's trying to convince Israel that when they look at Canaanites, And they look at Egyptians and they look at Babylonians that they must recognize that deep in the past that really they're looking at someone who's their brother, who's their sister. That they should not just see people for their differences, though we should not ignore our differences. No, they should see people as their distant relatives in that in the same way that all of humanity back in the day was united under Noah, he wants Israel to see that someday God desires to reunite humanity under a single person in the future. Friend, when you and I recognize the Bible's viewpoint on the nations, you and I will understand that racism and prejudice has no place in the life of a Christian. That you and I need to recognize we don't serve a European Jesus. I don't even think we serve a light-skinned Jesus. No, we serve a God who is a God of the nations. We serve a God who himself created a diverse people, and he is the one who made that happen. And if God is the one who made that happen, we ought to recognize that though people are different, though they're scattered across the globe, though some of other people's cultures and customs may seem strange to us, that when we see someone of a different race or a different culture, we must look at them and recognize that in a distant way they're our brothers and our sisters. That in the same way all of humanity is united under Noah, all of humanity is under the authority of God. But the question is this, okay? So if God originally was uniting all of humanity under this guy Noah, they all had the same father. The text begs the question, how how on earth did humanity get so scattered and so divisive? Why are the people who should view each other as brothers now enemies? That's really what's happening in the Middle East. People who used to be brothers are now enemies. Some of you may be in your families. You used to be brothers, sisters, now you're enemies. Why are people who are in the same family ultimately not united? Well, chapter eleven shows us that humanity is scattered not just because their single origin, but because of their sinful origin. It's interesting that chapter ten is kind of a genealogy, chapter eleven is kind of a genealogy, and then in the middle of these two is this very brief, very rich story. It's so there's so many details I won't even cover, and I. Loathe the fact that I'm not preaching this as its own sermon, but I feel like I need to deal with this as a whole. What a rich story, this story of the Tower of Babel. And what's interesting, what you, it, it doesn't take much to figure out, is that chapter 11 comes after chapter 10 in the book, but chapter 11 happened before chapter 10. Are you, are you catching that? Chapter 10 tells us all these scattered nations. But chapter 11 tells us how they became scattered. I don't know about you, if I was writing a book, I would have put chapter 11 first, right? And so when you're reading your Bible and you see that an author is intentionally flip-flopping the order of something, you recognize that there's a reason for that. I think, first of all, Moses is doing that so that the Israelites would view the other nations in a more positive light. But now he's gonna show us how humanity became scattered. Verse number one shows us that it, didn't, it wasn't always scattered. Humanity had an Olympic mindset, if you will. Look at verse one. The whole earth was of one language and one speech. Verse number two tells us they were in one land, the East Plains of Shinar. Verse three tells us they were of one purpose, building this tower. Now, if you're reading Genesis with keen eyes, Some red flags should already be raised. There's nothing wrong with humanity being of one language, but you recognize that God didn't tell humanity to stay together. What did he tell Adam in creation? Multiply and what? Fill the earth. Noah steps off the ark. You know what God's first words to him are? Multiply and fill the earth. Don't stay together, no. Go out and fill the earth, kind of like the Great Commission, but yet humanity is not obeying God's command. They're sticking together because what we discover in verses three through four is that they are more interested not in making a world that declares God's glory. No, no. They're sticking together so they have more resources and more power to build a tower that reaches heavens. They're attempting to be like God. They're not living for God's glory. No, this is a a loaded statement in verse number four. They say, let us make us a name. We don't wanna give God glory. No, we wanna have fame and fortune and glory and popularity. And so they hatch this tower to build or this hatch this plan to build a huge tower to reach godlike status. Can I remind you this morning, church family, that your efforts for greatness will always be laughable if they're not connected to God's glory? That's kind of how the, the story is worded. They're trying to build this huge tower. Like, you know, it, I'm thinking it's some sort of older ziggurat, but they're trying to make it skyscraper, a mega tower, if you will. And they're trying to build this huge tower and it's, it's with a hint of sarcasm that God says to himself, let's go down there and find this thing they're trying to build. So their minds, oh, they've got this huge tower that they're trying to build and God's like, uh, I, I can't see it from up here. Let me, let me stoop down to their level to see if I can maybe find what they're trying to do. And friend, all of us, we have ways, I think at times, of trying to build a life that is for our own glory, our own popularity, our own benefit. And what this text reminds us is that if our life is not connected to God's glory and God's purposes, if we separate ourselves from God's glory and his purposes, our efforts to build a life that is pleasing to ourselves is ultimately laughable, puny. To build our own kingdom and to live our own life that is disconnected from God is nothing to be admired. No, on that final day when God steps down from heaven to judge it, it will be puny and laughable because God has given us his word and his commands and he has told us what to do, which is why God refuses to sit by and do nothing. He scatters them. He had told them to go scatter themselves, but they didn't seem to do it. And so instead in verses seven through nine, it details how these people who are more interested in making a name for themselves than living for God's glory became scattered and God forced them to fill the earth. Chapter 11 shows us that the reason we end up with a world of different languages that's scattered and very different in all sorts of different cultures is in a way a form of God's judgment. But as is often the case in Genesis, if you really think about it, it's actually a form of God's grace. Because what chapter 11 shows us is that if humanity comes together and if their sin nature isn't fixed, that when humanity unites together, it's not for good. And so God, rather than having another reason to wipe out all of humanity, he scatters their their people and he confuses their language so that they can no longer unite together to oppose him. They're scattered because of their sin. Friend, this is another stake in the ground that testifies to the fact that in the eyes of God, all of us are sinful, I said all of us are sinful. We have all tried to live a life that is not always for God's glory and we all have inherited this sin nature. If you haven't figured that out, it, it's, it's laid out almost on every page of Genesis that you and I are sinful people and we live in a world that testifies not just to the reality of sin, because I don't think any of us disagree with that, But our world, in so many different ways, testifies to the fact that our world is under God's judgment. Friend, if you don't believe in the judgment of God, ask yourself, do you have a better explanation for a divided humanity? If you don't believe in the judgment of God, ask yourself if you have a better explanation for death. Ask yourself if you have a better explanation for how humanity just can't seem to get along, because Genesis 3 shows us that that is part of God's judgment. Ask yourself if you have a better explanation as to why the only creature on God's green earth that has difficulty bearing children and has pain in bearing children is humans. Friend, in every page of Genesis, it shows us that we are sinners under God's judgment, and something has to happen to fix that or we are hopeless. Strangely, God answers that question. How will God bless the nations who are divided? Through a genealogy. Again, it's by design that Moses picks up where he left off in chapter number 10 and he shows us that in the end of chapter number 11 in verses 10 through 32, that God will bless all of the nations through one nation that will bring a savior. He sets this section off in chapter 11, verse 10. He picks up with this guy Shem, who's the son of Noah. And then he traces that genealogy down in verse number 18 to where he left off with Peleg. Remember Peleg, the guy with the weird name? Peleg and Joktan. So he picks up with Peleg in verse number 18. Look at your Bibles, chapter 11, verse 18. Peleg lived 30 years. And I'm not going to bore you with all the details, but he has a son. Who has a son? Who has a son? Who has a son? And then it's not insignificant that it traces all the way down to this guy named Abraham. The whole reason Moses includes this genealogy in chapter number 11 is to show that in response to the sin of humanity, God is going to bring forth a promised son, the same thing he's been promising since Genesis 3, the seed of the woman who had crushed the serpent. And he seems to direct our attention to this guy named Abraham. And if you know, you know that Abraham is the forefather of a nation called Israel that will make up the focal point of the Bible story from this chapter in Genesis all the way to Malachi. So this is a big deal. And it becomes even more clear why this man is brought to earth in chapter 12, verses one through three. Look at verse one. Now the Lord said unto Abram, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house Unto a land I will show thee. Listen, what has been happening in chapter 10 and 11? We've seen fathers, we've seen lands, we've seen nations, and we've seen the curse of sin. It's not by accident that God says this to Abraham. And I will make of thee a great nation, verse number two. And I will bless thee and make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. How will God bless these divided nations? How will God reunite a humanity that used to be united under Noah? God will use the nation of Israel through Abraham. But what you begin to figure out if you read your Bible a little bit further is this nation Israel seems to, in a shadow, accomplish some of this under Solomon. He brings peace, but then war happens again and Israel's not quite getting it done. And if you read the very first verse of your New Testament, Matthew connects Abraham to the one who actually would be the promised son that would reunite all of humanity and reunite them and fix their sin problem. Ultimately, this plan of God is not centered around a nation. It is centered around a promised son named Jesus Christ who would be the one to bless the nations and to fix their sin problem, and to crush the serpent, and to bring all of the nations back together. That's why we see in the Gospels, Jesus is not just healing and declaring the sins of Jews to be forgiven. No, he's saying these things to Gentile women, and Gentile men, and demon-possessed people, and Roman centurions. That's why Jesus' apostles, they don't hang out in Jerusalem anymore. They start going all the way to the furthest reaches of the earth to declare the good news of Jesus to every nation. That's why in Acts chapter number two, it's not by mistake that a bunch of people from over a dozen different nations who cannot speak the same language gather together to hear the gospel in their own language As Peter preaches and God miraculously transcends the barrier of language that began in Genesis 11 and shows us that it is the gospel that will reunite the nations. Don't believe me? Listen to what the Old Testament says. In Zephaniah 3, which intentionally is written similar to this passage, it says, therefore wait ye upon me saith the Lord until the day that I rise up to the prey for my determination is to gather the nations that I may assemble the kingdoms to pour upon them mine indignation, even all my fierce anger, for all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. And this proclaims that the day will come where all of humanity will be united in the same way that they were in chapter number 11. Revelation 20 describes it to us that all of humanity will gather to battle against God once again. In the same similar way, their efforts will be laughable and those who oppose God will be forever judged. But there will be people from every nation who used to speak a different language that then will gather to say what really God was trying to get people to say in chapter 11. Notice Zephaniah continues, then will I turn to the people a pure language that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. And that prophecy is fulfilled in Revelation 7, when John says, I beheld a great multitude, which no man could number of all nations. Does this sound familiar? We've read it twice now in this service. And kindreds and people and tongues who stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. And what do they say? Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. When will racism and prejudice and hatred be erased? When the people of God from all nations gathered together, united around the throne of God, singing praises to the one who saved their souls. And when you and I recognize that that is the heavenly, heavenly reality that awaits us, here's what will happen. You and I will live like that now. That's why as a church, we have to remember that Jesus is a savior of all nations. Our church preaches a gospel and you, my friend, contain a gospel. It's not just me who preaches it. You should be preaching it that is relevant just as much to a white farmer in Southwest Kansas as it is to a Middle Eastern immigrant. We preach a salvation that is so powerful, it will achieve world unity in a way that the Olympics or the United Nations or nobody else can ever achieve. And we must remember that our God is a God who desires to be glorified among all nations. He is the one who created the diversity of language and culture. And yet in his strange sovereign plan, he will gather these diverse people under one head who is Jesus Christ. Therefore, we must preach the gospel not just to people who look like us, but to people who don't. That's why we must send missionaries not just to plant churches in the states but to plant churches in the foreign countries because God's plan of regathering all of humanity is through the gospel of Jesus Christ because there's one thing that all humanity shares in common. They are sinners who need God's grace. I wonder when you look at somebody this week, whether they have a different skin color or whether they're your brother that you hate, if you see them for their differences or for their similarities... if you have enough of a biblical mindset to recognize that actually altogether they're quite like you, they are a person who needs a redeemer. And so we will not allow our differences to keep us from declaring the everlasting gospel. It was Christmas in 1914 and it was several months into World War I. And yet something strange happened on Christmas Day. The men who were soldiers of the rival nations of Germany and Britain that just a day before were shooting at each other, now were singing Christmas carols together. It began where they were singing Christmas carols in their trenches. You know, in World War I, they fought in trenches, but then it escalated where the men began to climb out of their trenches and to gather with one another in what is called no man's land, the area between the trenches of the different nations. And not only did they sing, they, they, in some places they held joint burial services to honor the dead from both sides of the war. They exchanged snacks and cigarettes and souvenirs and stories. For a few peaceful moments on Christmas 1914, they were not enemies. They were just men. Men who had a lot in common. Historical estimates record that over 100,000 German and British troops were involved in what is called the Christmas Truce of 1914. 1914. Unfortunately, that truce was a brief pause in history's, one of history's longest and most brutal wars. What if that kind of ceasefire could happen forever? What if humanity could somehow regather despite all of their differences and set aside all of their bad blood and bad history? Does that seem unachievable? The Bible tells us that one day humanity will be regathered and reunited in peace and it will not be because they themselves overcame the bad blood they had against those who had opposed them. Humanity will be reunified when multitudes of people recognize that all of their bad blood was dealt with by the blood of their savior. What does our passage teach us? Can division be turned into brotherhood? Can bitter enemies become friends only by the blood of Jesus? Friend, if you will shake your head at that, you're a hypocrite if you're a bitter grudge holder tomorrow and a racist and a hateful person. No. We recognize that we are all of one blood and we are redeemed by one blood and therefore God calls us to seek peace and reconciliation where we can. I like how Paul says it because it's practical. As much as lies within you live at peace with all men let's pray